We are uh, at the end of, well, not quite at the end, but we're nearing the end of the Apostle Paul's discussion on liberty, uh, liberty and freedom in Christ. And I'm hoping that that kind of all uh, resonates with you. I don't have to review all of that. He's dealing with specific issues that relate to Corinth that don't relate to us, like eating meat, sacrifice to idols, and hopefully that context, uh, you remember all of that. But verse 14 through 22, he goes down kind of a bunny trail. Now, it isn't a bunny trail, but at first reading, it sounds like it is. Up to this point in chapter 10, and actually 8, 9, and 10, but up to this point, he has been dealing with the issue of liberty, the issue of freedom. Now, he brings in a theological issue. He brings in a theological issue that is unique to what was going on at Corinth. But it gives us a rather um, important insight into things that I think we can apply today. So I want you to observe a couple of things as we look at verses 14 through 22. I want you to notice very uh, right out of the, the chute, first of all, therefore my beloved flee from idolatry. Which when you first see that, oh my, that's almost like it's like a shock because up to this point, he hasn't been talking about idolatry as a practice. He's been talking about eating meat that was offered to a bunch of dumb idols that don't mean anything and that you have the freedom to do that as long as you do, do not hurt your weak brother. But now he issues a direct, unmistakable, unambiguous command Flee from idolatry. And the reason he says that is because in back of idolatry, empowering um, and really enabling idolatry is another supernatural power that you want to stay away from. The second thing I want you to observe is you see it both as a uh, as a verb or participle as well as, as a noun. In verse 16, you see the word sharing twice. In verse 18, you see the word sharers. In verse 20, you see the word sharers. All four of those times, it's a variation of the word koinonia, which I'm pretty sure many of you have heard of that word. We often translate that fellowship, but it's has very much the idea of covenant fellowship. Are you with me so far? My way of making some observations? And then I would encourage you, if you you have the outline, on page 15, number 2, number 3, and number uh, number 2, 3, 4, and 5, Paul is talking about four very specific events, four very specific events, Um, aspects of spiritual life that are either positive or negative, but each one is connected with some kind of covenant fellowship. I speak to you as wise men, he says in verse 15, you judge what I say, you evaluate. 
Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of one bread. All right. Verse uh, verse 16 and 17 are really dealing with what? The Lord's Supper. What some of you might call communion. Some of you may come from a, a tradition that refers to it as the Eucharist. But Paul is saying something. There is a covenant sharing between us and Christ and a covenant sharing with one another when we partake of the Lord's table. I mean, it gives us a little bit of an insight into how profoundly important it is how we view communion. This is a very significant aspect of church life, of body life, as it's sometimes called. This is a very important aspect. The Protestant church calls it an ordinance. The Catholic church calls it a sacrament. Regardless of, and I want to get into the differences, the important point is, this is a very significant aspect of both our relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another. This is something we do corporately. Uh, now, granted, somebody can be very, very ill or, or very disabled, and they, they, they can't partake corporately, so you may take it to the hospital room. But, I mean, generally speaking, communion is a, is a corporate uh, ordinance of the church. It's something we do together. And in both cases, the Apostle Paul is using the idea of its covenant sharing with one another. This is a part, this is a dimension of the new covenant. Now let me buttress that with one additional comment. Do you remember in the upper room, hours before Jesus is about to be crucified, he institutes the Lord's table, what we call communion or whatever. And if you remember his words, you know, this is my body, each time you eat, remember, etc. Then this is the cup. The cup which, re- the, the correct way to translate that is which represents the new covenant. The blood that Christ shed on Calvary's cross inaugurates the new covenant. So you have to keep all of that in the background of what he's saying here. This aspect, this practice, this ordinance, whatever you want to call it, of communion is a new covenant practice. And we share something with Christ and we share something with one another when we do it. Why is he saying that? Because he's setting, maybe another way of saying he's laying the groundwork for where he's going with this, which is in verse 20. We're not quite there yet. In verse 18, he brings up Israel. He brings up the Jews before Christ came. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers at the altar? Now again, in back of that, you have to remember so much of the Old Testament, but the sacrifices, the sacrificial feasts at the altar whether you're talking about the tabernacle or after Solomon, the temple. This was the altar where God atoned for sin 
as the blood sacrifice of animals occurred. That is a key dimension of the Mosaic Covenant. Remember? Are you still tracking with me? So this is covenantal sharing with one another as well as in this sacrificial uh, dimension from God's perspective. That is how he atoned for sin. So he's brought up the New Covenant. He's brought up the Mosaic Covenant. Then verse 19, what do I mean then? That's a good question. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. This is not an issue of liberty. This is not a freedom issue. This is a theological issue. Verse 20. No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. Same word that you saw in verse 16 and in 18. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. So when the Corinthians would go in to the idol temple, Aphrodite, Apollos, two big temples in Corinth at that time. Eating meat, not an issue. But when you go in there, there's something else going on. There's something else profoundly important that you cannot ignore. I'm going to put it another way, and I want you to ask me questions or help me understand if you're not getting this. There is a deep-seated demonic power that is at work in that idol temple, and you cannot ignore it. Going in there and eating meat, not a problem. But there's a lot else going on in there. There's demonic activity. Because when, and when he says Gentiles, he means, that's kind of a label that's used in the New Testament for the non-believer, the person who hasn't come to faith in Christ. When they go in and they engage in all of that activity in that temple of Aphrodite or Apollos or uh, whoever they, they were worshiping, there's so much going on in that you don't see and you don't understand. It's demonic power at work because behind idolatry is demonic power that's an important insight for us how can we apply an insight like that to our day because we don't face the issue that these guys in Corinth are facing I don't think any of you do but we don't face those issues but what insight what application can we make from verse 20 any thoughts on that do you understand what he's saying? First of all, is that clear? Is there anybody that doesn't understand what he's saying? Because he's, he's taking an important um, like track for a minute, and he says, you know, as he makes it very clear in verse 19, this is not an issue of liberty. That's not why I'm bringing it up. This is a much more, this is a deeper issue, much more important issue. So how can we make application of this? 
Can we make application? Should we make application? I think one of the first questions to ask is are there contemporary corollaries to Are you asking that rhetorically, or do you want an answer? I would like an answer. Do you have, you have any thoughts on it at all? You even tentative in how you would answer that question? Well, I mean, there are satanic worshippers in the Of course. I mean, in the, I mean, I think we just sort of instinctively know this dear clear of those, but I suppose mm -hmm. that there are others that have, that are more subtle, perhaps. I don't know quite how to put my finger on them, whether it's, you know, I really don't, I guess I don't know. Uh, well, let's see if anybody else has any thought. Because uh, I, I do have an answer to that. First thing that jumps to my mind these days is pornography. Um, the, I mean, it's, it's one of those things that just, like I've heard you say before, you're, you, I, and not necessarily in the sense of the online stuff, like stuff just in your everyday mm -hmm. movie done in the movie theater, stuff like that. You have the freedom to go see that, but as I've heard you say before, you're a fool if you don't think that's affecting mm -hmm. you. Because, mm -hmm. um, and and my other thought was, you know, sometimes when you talk about idolatry today, being, you know, there there are good things out there that we can we can have in our lives and do, but when when they're made the ultimate thing, mm. it becomes an idol when they replace. Jesus, it becomes an idol, and, and so the, the demonic power of that is very crafty in, in getting into our into our psyches and stuff like that. It's just damaging because things are going on when you're around that. You know, you have the freedom to be around it, even if you don't think it's making you stumble. Um, I've heard it say that pornography actually viewing it changes the shape of your brain. Um, it's like anything else that can be an addictive substance. Um, the, the, there are physical and biological um, aspects mm. that change in you when you when you view that stuff. So that was the first thing that came to my mind. We hear about worshiping wealth or success or you know influence and power and those kinds of things. They can become idols. But it's not like there's a temple right. that you go to where you worship these things. It's sort of Maybe the New York Stock Exchange is a temple. That's what happens more privately. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah I see it. Yeah. So I, I, don't know, I, I guess I would be looking for you to help us. Any other thoughts before we go on? <laughs> My mind was you are who your friends are. You know, and there's an interesting thing on Yahoo this morning. Kansas State did a map of the seven deadly sins of greed, gluttony, and stuff. That was it. it, and it was showing it this morning, and it's more geographical. I mean, it really makes you think of where you raise your family and mm -hmm. Christian where you're at. But uh, that's what came to mind. Any others? I just think that there's a spiritual Dave? warfare going on, kind of in the background, like almost another world happening like on a daily basis, like a minute by minute basis. And uh, even within ourselves, you know, this uh you know, I don't think about that. It's just the devil and the God doing the battle in this world we're part of that. And uh, this idolatry language, everyone else is 
some different level, you know, it, when, when we kind of think about those things, that is part of that world. Certainly, Dave nailed it. I mean, he's exactly correct. It's like there is another world that we don't see. It's, it's not physical. <clears throat> Our senses are not of much help when it comes to that world. But it's a spiritual world. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, which introduces the material on the whole armor of God, says, we do not fight against flesh and bone. We fight against, and he uses a series of terms which are typically used of the hierarchy of demonic power. So therefore, dress for battle. Now, that's obviously figurative. It's metaphorical. But dress for battle. You are in a defensive position. The only offensive weapon of that battle is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul says. So let's think of this at several levels, okay? Um, let's think of this, first of all, at a formal level, okay? Let me use just this as an example. You have a worldview or a world religion called Hinduism, okay? Hinduism is quite prevalent in India, although you see it in other parts of South Asia. It is a growing phenomenon in the United States. There's a major Hindu temple in Chicago. There is a huge Hindu temple. All right, Hinduism as a worldview says there are approximately 300 million gods. All, in effect, flowing out of the three great gods of Hinduism, Shiva, I mean, I'm not going to get any into that any further. Now, if we take what Paul is saying, because you go into the Hindu temples and you offer sacrifices to them. You dress them. You put food out for them. When I was when I did my book on worldviews, my publisher uh, put it together in a company DVD, and that DVD is at this great Hindu temple in Chicago. And as they're filming it, a lady is walking around the temple as fast as she could. She is waking up the gods. They've been asleep. This is a prosperous, well-dressed, good-looking woman from Chicago. That's what she's doing. Because she wants to go into the temple and offer sacrifices to him. If we take what Paul is saying in verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 10, 20, uh, 1 Corinthians 10, what's in back of this? What's energizing that? Well, you're supposed to answer that question, but since nobody is doing it, I'll write it down here. It's demonic power. Now that can be unsettling for you. Because we live in a pluralistic culture where we're to respect and honor what anybody believes. And I'm not saying we should pound people into the ground who are Hindus, but it is very important for you and me to understand the power of what that verse is teaching us. Why do people become so enthralled in Hinduism? Why do they give their entire life to it? 
Because demonic power is in backup. And it's deceptive. It, it lures you in. And it enslaves you. I find what Paul is teaching here extremely helpful in understanding why world religions that you and I look at and say, how could anyone believe that? How could anyone follow a system like this? The answer is, I mean, there are several levels and several ways to answer that. But this, Paul is telling us, explains an awful, awful lot of it. And you could apply that to any world religion. I believe, and I, you know, I, 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 I believe this very strongly, but I believe one of the reasons Islam has such a powerful force in people's lives is because this is what's energizing it. It isn't just some innocuous, well, it's just some guy who lived in the 600s and name was Muhammad, and he just got a bunch of people that thought he was right, and they followed him. That's, that is true, but it's much deeper than that. You follow what I'm saying? The application of this, it seems to me, becomes very important in helping us to understand that someone who is in the Hindu worldview, Satan, has a death grip on them. And only God's Holy Spirit can break them free. Does those people experience anything of spiritual effect on their lives that continue to make them believe in this? Or not? Of course. Of course yes. it does. Of course it does. Very powerful. Like even for the Hinduism, they That's right. up God. You know, it is a difference between growing up with something and believing it because your family told you so, your culture told you so, but then as you grow up and you, you know, you start questioning, especially when you get educated and you became more uh, skeptical of things. It has to be some effect on them that keeping them believing in that. That's right. Right? I mean, so, absolutely. Some of, the, some of the wealthiest and most influential people in India today are Hindus. But they, and they still worship. They still go to the Hindu temple. They still engage in all the Hindu worship. They're well educated. Some have PhDs. How do you explain that? I mean, there are a lot of ways in which you can explain it, but Paul is telling us that is one of the most important aspects. And see, that is why um, that is why when when the gospel is shared with someone from another worldview, which is basically everyone else who's not Christian, but you, you are engaged in a spiritual battle there. This isn't just well. Now, you believe in this, how can you believe in this crazy, idiotic system called Hinduism? Who would believe in that? That's the worst way to approach it. Satan has a death grip on that person. And it is only the Holy Spirit of God who breaks the grip. You and I don't do that. You and I are called to be faithful in explaining what the truth is. But it's up to God how that's affected. That's why they tell us, the typical person on planet Earth has to hear the gospel at least seven times, at least seven times, clearly articulated before they begin to think about responding to it. That's why every time that truth is shared with a person, 
whether it's on the radio, something they read, they get a copy of the Bible or whatever, God, God is at work in their lives, but ultimately they have to respond to it. Uh, one of the scriptures says that we uh, battle against principalities. And one of the examples uh, <coughs> that you gave, Jim, uh, was outside of a religious situation, but it was like going over to the uh, one of the casinos and walking in to get a meal. Um, it is, can you comment on the demonic power that exists uh, in other venues as a general statement other than religions that, that might be operative that we might not even think of? Well, uh, I mean, if you want me to comment on demonic power at the casinos, I'm not going to do that because I don't know that for sure. But I think what we can say is that, and that was what I was going to get into in the, the other area, the informal area, so to speak, that um, I, I think Satan demonic activity is evident in any any area or any practice or any, would be another way, any system that will cause you to be drawn away from God and drawn away from truth and substitute something else for God, which I think is part of what Andrew was saying in his broader definition and understanding of idolatry. Um, Because idolatry by definition, uh, because generally in the West, we think of an idol as a piece of wood or a stone or something like that that's shaped into some image of of, of that which is spiritual. But I think uh, it's much, much more important for us to think a lot more broadly of that. Anything that will take the place of God in our life is a candidate for idolatry. And um, although I think the New Testament teaches this, we, and once we trust Christ and, and put our faith in him and are, are, are born again, so to speak, the Holy Spirit takes up her. I do not believe a Christian can be demon-possessed. You cannot be possessed of spirit of God and the demon at the same time. That's impossible. But we can be oppressed. And that's a, that's a, a ber- verbal distinction, but I think it's an important one. And as we open ourselves up to more and more of these things, that oppression can become real, luring us and drawing us away from the things that keep us close to God. So to me, that would be an, an informal an informal way of applying this. And when I say you know, when I say formal, I'm talking about structured worldviews that become world religious systems. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about something informal which can be anything. And it can be anything that will, will in effect begin to take the place of God in your life and become the all consuming center of your life. And and Andrew's example is correct. I mean, pornography can become like an idol. It becomes an all-consuming, obsessive uh, right word, dimension of your life that you become enslaved to. <clears throat> and and I, I really do believe that in back of the power of pornography is not just the lustful tendency we have as human beings and especially as men, that is something that can be used by the evil one in, a, in an incredibly powerful way. It absolutely destroys a person, just like drugs 
or uh, alcohol. I mean, those kinds of things, all, they, they are all the tools that the evil empire uses to destroy us. And it, it has unbelievers in a death grip. Those who come to faith in Christ, it can so damage and destroy our walk with the Lord that it can render us ineffective for him. Uh, a couple of comments. One, uh, one of my concerns, well, first of all, Andrew's talking about pornography, and it was interesting that if you study or read about serial killers, uh, virtually every serial killer has been exposed to and had a large part of their life uh, influenced by pornography. <clears throat> it's not to say that if you get into pornography, you're going to be a serial killer. True. But they do show mm-hmm. that virtually every serial killer have, have pornography. Um, the other comment I was going to make was that one of the areas that I'm always concerned with in regards to this is that uh, since becoming a Christian, I've been concerned because I was involved in New Age type of church for that. And the seepage that I've seen over the years of the principles of a lot of New Age thinking has been very slowly, very, if, you're, if, you're, if you've been around it, you understand the, the wording and you oh, hell, yeah. you know right away what it is. So many, mm-hmm. they, they wrap it in scripture and then people tend to put the guards mm-hmm. down. I've seen a lot of that seep into the Christian mm-hmm. faith where it's really, you can see it and you're going, man, that's, that's just a new way. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of my biggest concerns. It's very subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, we all see pornography, mm-hmm. but, but this is really subtle. Mm-hmm. That's always been one of my because the New Age, and that's a, that's a very amorphous worldview. I mean, more, it doesn't have a lot of structure to it. It's a very, but that is the reason it's so easy for Christians to slip into that, because there's an automatic acceptance. There is a spirit world. Absolutely. The difference between Christianity and New Age is New Age gives you all these vehicles to tap into the spirit world, channeling, rocks, I mean, all of these things that are just silly, but they are used by... In my view, the demonic power to get you lured into that, so that you're buy, you're buying something that's close, at least in language, close to Christian. Oh wow, good. Be very careful because there are a lot of really, really, really false teachers out there. And some are on television. They're using New Age methodologies and saying it's of the Holy Spirit, and that's uh, just. You know, Oh, heavens, yeah. Oh, it's deep into a lot of the business world. It really is, absolutely. And it's, it's simple things like even in exercise and, and taking care of your body. I mean, it's, yoga is in and of itself not necessarily evil because it's a, it can help you to relax, which is good and deal with stress. But the moment the yoga teacher, now I want you to teach you a mantra, and I want you to use this mantra, well, that's probably something you'd be really leery of doing. I mean, it's just it's each one of those steps, and it's. You could a, have Christians sit there and just jump out of their shorts and start arguing with you because they would think you were just off your rock. And that's how far this has come because no. you take the media; they have mainstream stuff and made it very acceptable. Oh, have you see it in all these shows where people come in? And well, every one, and all every one of the talk shows, whatever that means anymore. Yeah. But I mean, uh, I mean, they're just. Every one of them, and I, I don't mean to single her out, but she's not on as much as she used to be, but Oprah, Oprah is very 
she comes out of a Baptist background, but she is thoroughly New Age. Her entire worldview is thoroughly New Age. And it's, it's, an, and it's, a, it's an incredibly subtle, but it's a very, when I'm getting beyond, a little bit beyond what Paul's teaching. So, I, I, Dave, did you have your hand up? or you? Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. We need to be concerned about it. We all want to be, we don't like to be accused of being uh, intolerant. Yeah. So, we, you know, if I can possibly find something good about what this other person, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, then, then we're, but that is going to, that could potentially suck us down into that. Exactly. So we have to be so careful about it. We do. We have words. I know when yeah. I was at home. Yeah. Which is in and of itself an innocuous game, but it is a historically a very effective tool that has been used by C.S. Lewis years and years ago wrote a little book called The Screwtape Letters, which I would highly recommend you read sometime. Because all Lewis is doing is he, if you've ever, you know what I'm talking about, if you read it, it's, it's an imaginary, creative set of dialogues between a master demonic leader and a young novice telling this is how you this is how you do it <laughs> and it depends on whom you're dealing with but each one you have a different strategy so uh, Paul is this I've, I've always found this passage to be an incredibly insightful passage for us it doesn't have anything to do specifically with liberty he makes that clear twice, but he's telling them, going in to the idol temple in Corinth is not a neutral issue. There is much more going on there, and you need to be aware of that. So the best advice I have, Paul is saying, is flee from idolatry. Don't see how close you can get to it. Stay away from it. It isn't just an issue of meat. If that's all it were, it's not that big of a deal. But it's much, much more important than that. And guys, that, this, is, this is really difficult to talk about in our culture today. Because what I wrote up here, what I've been talking about, I, there are a lot of public venues where I couldn't quite say it this way without being, you know, rendered such a bigot that you would never have an opportunity to speak again. So you have to be very wise and careful and discerning that this is the truth that Paul's laying out for us. And certainly within our fellowships, within our churches, within our, our body of believers, this should be taught. This should be laid out. This is crystal clear stuff. When you're talking about idolatry, formal systems of idolatry. And I'm not talking about, you know, materialism, those things, those influence, extremely important for us in the West. But like, uh, as Terry was saying, the stuff that's associated with New Age and how that's crept into, we've got to really be, and the only way to to help people deal with that is teach them the truth. 
because the truth helps them to see very clearly the error that is so um, pervasive. In see, what we've done is we've created a group of very shallow, superficial Christians in the United States, and they can hardly discern error from truth. And that is, uh, that's one group of people's fault. John, I, you know, we're here studying this word. And can you explain the word and then the indwelling of the Holy Spirit once we've come to Jesus Christ and how they work in canon and, and offering uh, this discernment when we're out there? It's, it's not like that we become Christians and we're, we're just going to be victims of the first temptation that comes along. Do we have, you know, you think of that verse that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world, and the world is what we've been talking about here, maybe. So um, we're not just going to be victims because of all of these temptations around. We have the ability. As Christians, do we not? I mean, these, this is pretty powerful stuff, and so is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And between those two, I mean, can we, as we sit around this table, count on that so if we have a question, we go back into the Scriptures or we go to our knees or wherever in prayer. Or seek the counsel of others, whatever. Mm -hmm. And, okay, that's another good point, I, I would say, maybe, mm -hmm. to bring out the talk to a fellow Christian and mm -hmm. say, what do you think of this is what mm -hmm. I'm dealing with? Absolutely. I, let's let's take a minute, uh, if you don't mind. Let's take a minute. Go over to Ephesians six. <clears throat> because, in a in a sense, the the proper answer to Fred's question and his series of comments is to review what's in Ephesians six. Starts with verse ten. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now those two powerful words, strong, strength, might, that's three words there, they're all military terms in the Greek language. So Paul is setting us up for the military metaphor that he's about to look at. Put on the full armor of God, which he will begin explaining later on. With what purpose? That you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Schemes, that, that's a wonderful word. It's the manipulative, well-thought-through, contriving um, strategies of the evil one. He is a better student of you than you are of you. He knows your weaknesses. And again, that wonderful little book by C.S. Lewis, he just, screw tape letters, this, he's a student of us. Why... Why do we put on the form? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavens. As Dave said earlier, there is a war going on. It's a war you and I can't see. It is a war between God and and in Satan, and it is over one question, who has the right to rule this universe? It's Satan, 
the usurper who is challenging God's right to rule, or it's God, the creator, sustainer, and redeemer of this world. And that powerful struggle has been going on for all of history, so to speak, because Satan is a created being, so it hasn't been going on for eternity. And that battle, that war, that conflict is now focused on one place in the universe, not Mars. It's not another galaxy. It's planet Earth. Therefore, take up the full armor of God with this purpose, that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. You put on the belt of truth. What does that mean? These are figures of speech, but what does it mean by that? What, what does this put on your armor mean? I'm going to live my life in integrity and truth. I'm not going to be a liar. I'm not going to misrepresent truth. I'm not going to distort truth. If you are a person of integrity, Satan has no chance of cracking into your armor. Second, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. That's, you know, Roman soldiers, the breastplate protected the vital organs. But Romans, when we studied Romans last year, Romans 6, 1 through 14 declares, you are righteous in Christ. So it's important for you to remember that. Part of your offensive weapon is, I am righteous in Christ. That's who I am. My identity is no longer defined by what I do in my sin. My identity is now defined by my relationship with Christ, and I'm righteous. If you believe that, and you hold to that, Satan will have no chance of cracking into your own. Third, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. That's long and kind of wooden, but it's the, it's the hobnail boots of the soldier. When the soldier would be, be standing and defending uh, you know, a fortress or some line of defense, he would dig those boots deep into the ground. It was almost immovable. Why is that? What's that mean of the gospel? I am at peace with God. I am reconciled to God through Christ. This is who I am. And because I am at peace with God, I'm no longer his enemy. I'm at peace with God because of Christ. My salvation is secure. I dig those boots in. And if that's what we believe, and that's how we do, Satan will have no chance of cracking into your arm. Verse 17, 16, in addition, taking up the shield of faith. We live our lives by faith. The Roman soldier's shield was, they had two types of shield, but the one he's using here is the shield that covered the entire body. You held it up like this. I could tell you the whole story of how those shields were made, but the point is, if you had it, nothing can get to you. Nothing can get to you. Paul, uh, the author of Hebrews says, it is impossible to please God without faith. So if your trust is in God, your faith is in God. Your focus is in God. Satan will have no chance of cracking into your armor. Verse 17, take up the helmet of salvation. The helmet of salvation, that, here again, it's who I am in Christ, but that's protecting my mind. The helmet, 
I am, my thinking, everything, I am secure in Christ. I am, my identity is framed by my relationship with Christ. That Helen of it's absolutely secure. I don't need to, if that's your position, Satan has no chance of cracking in. And then the only offensive weapon in the soldier's toolkit was a sword. And Paul says it's the sword of the Spirit, capital S, which is the Word of God. And that's your only offensive weapon. And that is why it is imperative that we know this book. And in my view, it's my judgment, it's my conclusion, I might be wrong, but I believe one of the major reasons for the superficial, shallow uh, characterization of evangelical Christianity in North America is we don't know the word. We're not people of the word. We don't know it. So we don't have a sword. And I don't want you to miss 18 and 19. We sometimes forget this. But the other element of the armor is prayer. Sometimes we stop with the sword, but don't stop there. Prayer. At all times. <laughs> the echoes of First Thess 5, pray without ceasing. Now I'm saying all that because it, it's, um, it really is to some extent, as we go back to 1 Corinthians 10, it really to some extent is what Paul is talking about here as he counsels these people. Flee from idolatry. Don't see how close you can get to it. Flee from it. Because you are in a battle. And in that idol temple, there is much more going on than just a bunch of wooden stone stuff. And he wants them to understand that. All right? One of the biggest challenges to a Christian is the friendly fire which comes from what's called the progressive church or the, the people who are supposed to teach people the word is using that for acceptance and using the love and acceptance in Christianity to turn us again as what Christianity is about, which is acceptance of different sins like homosexuality, adultery, and other things. How can we confront this? You know, I know that this big number of churches who are strong in their teachings, but there is a huge number of percentage of churches are adopting the progressive Christianity. Do you agree with that or not? If you're in a church like that, go to another one. <laughs> I mean, I don't. That's terrible. It's, that's not. I, Mark, I, you know, I, there's no simple answer to something like that. I mean, there really isn't. Um, there just isn't a simple answer to that. It's distressing to me that um, that you see that to some extent, uh, even in Omaha, but. Um, I've said this to other people, so I'll say it here. If you believe that you need to stay in that church, then make sure you're in a Bible study or two, which is going to deepen your understanding of God's Word, deepen your commitment to His Word. If you would need to stay for a lot of reasons, sometimes it's children or whatever those specific circumstances might be, Make sure you're getting fed in some other way. Okay?
All right. Now, I, this is a little bit of a bunny trail uh, today. Uh, and in a way, it sort of is with Paul, but I think you can understand it isn't really a, a bunny trail with Paul. It's at the heart of what he's trying to teach these people. That there are layers to these considerations of, of what they're facing. One layer is the liberty issue. He's really dealt with that very powerfully and very effectively. But he says, I want to remind you of something else that's going on in those idol temples. And it's not just meat. There's a lot more going on there. Make sure you're aware of that. So for you and me today in the 21st century, I think it gives us a very helpful perspective on the power of error in other worldviews. That error is energized by demonic power, which explains. I mean, if you've ever been to Haiti or the Dominican Republic, you have a very fresh, uh, very poignant and penetrating example of the death grip Satan has on a whole island. Because, you know, Haiti and Dominican are one island. That death grip down there is unbelievable. You get off the plane, you, you can almost feel the oppressive power. And that death group goes back deep, it's several hundred years, deep into the history of that island. And Christianity is there, it's powerful, but that is one, it's, it's not subtle, it's not under the table like it is in North America. It is out in the open, it is clear what's going on there. See, we're so sanitized in the West, we don't think like that. But you get out of America... And you, you get into something, it's much more open, much more. When I was in Latin America, we got so clear at night. And yet we just you know, don't see it because it's screw tape letters. He's, he's using a different methodology in the West. So let's finish the liberty stuff. Any other questions? Can I move on? As Forrest Gump said, that great theologian, this is all I have to say about that. <laughs> Verse 23, he goes back to the liberty issue. And he quotes something that we saw back in chapter 6. It's a Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful. Yes, but not all things are profitable. Corinthian slogan, all things are lawful. Paul responds, but not all edify. Okay, he had taught that back in chapter 6. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. That's reviewing that our liberty is balanced and tempered by love. Always thinking of others. Now he has two more examples. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. Why? For the earth is the Lord's and the, all that it contains. He quotes Psalm 24, verse 1. What's he saying? Well, if you go back to the very beginning of our note packet, I gave you a picture of the city of Corinth. And if you remember that, if you have it accessed, right there and you see the little arrow is the Agora. Agora is Greek for marketplace. And I told you, in the various idol temples, the excess meat was taken to the marketplace and sold. So what has Paul just said to them? Go down to the marketplace and buy your steaks. Nothing wrong with that. Don't ask where it came from. 
Just, just enjoy it. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's. Meat is a good gift from a good God. So enjoy. Back to the liberty issue. Verse 27. If one of the unbelievers invites you, so now another scenario. So liberty issue, can I go down to the Agora and buy meat? Yep. Don't ask any question. Just eat it. Because the earth is the Lord's. It's his, his bounty. Another scenario. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you wish to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Yeah, very, that's not hard. Let's put it in our context. You have a neighbor who's having a barbecue. It's a, it's a hot July evening. The sun is going down. They're having you over steaks on the barbecue. What's Paul say? Go. Your unbelieving neighbor, go. Well, what's the first word of verse 28? But if anyone should say to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. Or why is my conscience judged by another's conscience? If I take thankfully, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give? So the moment you find out at that barbecue that that meat comes from the idol agora market down, the, uh, the meat that was from the temple that sold in the agora, the marketplace, a whole other set of questions comes in, like we just learned in chapter 8. But he says, it's not for your conscience. Your conscience is mature. You've got that settled, but it's for the conscience of others. And then verse 31 is one of the most important guidelines for us in how we live our lives. See what he says? My students, I hammer this into them all the time. They get tired of me quoting this. Whatever you eat then, or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. An important marker. Paul says in Romans chapter 14, the kingdom of God is not about food. It's not about drink. It's about power. It's about righteousness. It's about the glory of God. So that becomes, that becomes for us a very, very, very important motivator. Can you, let me put it another way. Are you glorifying God when you cut your grass in the summer? Of course you are. You're taking care of that which he's given you. Are you glorifying God when you brush your teeth? Yes. You're taking care of that which God has given you. Are you glorifying God when you close your eyes at night and sleep for five, six, seven, eight, however many hours you sleep? The answer to that is yes. Are you glorifying God when you have breakfast with your wife? Absolutely. Are you glorifying God when you get a cup of Starbucks coffee? Now, some of you may not be so sure. But I'm, I'm, I'm being a little... This becomes, this becomes a perspective that I have about my life. That everything I do, I seek to glorify God. Take care of that which he's given me. That's stewardship. But all the while... I mean, again, freedom in Christ does not mean free to sin. If you're sinning, you're not glorifying God. 
But even in our exercise, that's what the point he's been making for these three chapters. In the exercise of our freedom, be certain we're glorifying God. How do I do that? Sensitive to how others see the exercise of my liberty. Liberty is not just about me. I have the freedom. Remember he said, me as an example, I give up my freedom sometimes. That's why he concludes in verse 1, because chapter, uh, let me, can I finish this? Chapter 11, verse 1, is his final command on this. And it's one of the most audacious things I've ever heard anybody say. Paul says, be imitators of me. You want to know how to pull all this off? Be imitators of me. Literally, the Greek word is mimic me. But don't stop there. As I also mimic Christ. So mimic me because I'm mimicking Christ. Paul said When we return in January, we'll crack into chapter 11, which focuses on the the teachings of liberty when it comes to worship. And one of the applications of this is things like music, style, so it'll be so much fun. But I'm hoping the Lord comes so I don't have to discuss that. I'm going to pray. Lord, thanks for this time around the, the Word of God that we've had this year, 2013. This is our last meeting, and I thank you for the time with these men. Thank you for the growth that I've seen in their lives. The Word of God does that. So I pray for them this Christmas uh, season. In exactly a week, it's kind of an amazing thought, actually. We'll be celebrating the incarnation of Jesus it's an important holiday in the church, but it's an important personal day for each one of us because our lives really are focused on Christ. He is the most important person in our life. And as we think about that and sing the Christmas carols and all the stuff that's a part of this time of the year, Lord, help us to connect the Christmas story with Easter because in our faith, Christmas and Easter are inextricably linked. That's the reason Jesus came It isn't just to live a good moral life. It is to die and be resurrected for the sin of the human race. That's how much you love us. And for that, we are so grateful and eternally will sing your praises. So be with these men in this Christmas season. Help them to enjoy the time with family and friends. And if they're traveling, protect them as they travel. Help them to enjoy these, these days, which are very different than any other time of the year. But in all of that fun and enjoyment, good food and celebration and everything, help us to remember Jesus. And it's important that we keep him in the center of what we do and say. Because as we just learned, whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. It's a very important marker for our life, so we commit this to you. In Jesus' name.